April 25th, 2003, Aaron Ralston set out to go canyoneering in the Utah Canyonlands National Park. And he was an expert kind of hiker, climber, um, just kind of mountaineering, doing those kinds of things. And he set out, didn't tell anyone where he was going, but just enjoying an afternoon hike. He ran across some hikers along the way and uh, told them, you know, kind of guided them around. They went diving in some deep pools and in some canyons. And then they parted company He wanted because he wanted to spend, uh, you know, a couple more, uh, some more time out in the canyons. And so he went off on his own, and he was going through some of these high canyon walls, and uh, he slipped and fell into this crevice. And as he fell down this, this deep crevasse, a, an 800-pound boulder got jarred loose and followed him down this big opening. And when he landed at the bottom, the boulder came and basically pinned his arm, trapped his arm against the canyon walls, an 800-pound boulder, and there he was in pain, stuck in this deep crevasse, no way to get out, trapped. Pretty scary situation, huh? He's thinking through what he needs to do, how he can survive, how he can get out, of course trying to pry his arm loose, but soon realized there was just no way that that was going to happen. And he's t- he takes out his pocket knife that he had available to him, and he started trying to chip away at the boulders, seeing if he could maybe just chip it loose, crack it loose, eventually make some way. But after probably a day or more of this, it just became evident this wasn't going to happen. He's not going to get loose. The knife was completely dull. He started thinking about how to ration his water, how to ration his supplies. He knew screaming for help was of no use because nobody was in earshot. He was out in the middle of nowhere, buried basically in this rock tomb if nothing else happens. And time is passing. Days are passing, and he's thinking, how do I get out of here? How do I make a way? How do I, what's, what's my future? He starts hallucinating in different times. He starts, you know, his mind having psychological warfare during this time, remembering childhood memories, and just going through this, this crazy experience. And he's even having thoughts of, man, do I just cut my arm off? But the blade was so dull, he couldn't even cut his arm off with, it any, with that. He takes the harsh step about four or five days into this where he remembers some, a physics lesson about a fulcrum and force being applied and realizes that if with enough force, he can probably break the bones in his arm. And so he does. He breaks the radius and the ulna. And then with what's left, he, the small little knife that was left, he basically amputates the rest of his arm and makes that hard decision to leave the arm behind, wraps it in a tourniquet, and then still has to hike and scale down, rappel down a 65-foot wall after having just gone through this ordeal, he's bloody, he's beaten, he's just, you know, he'd run out of water. Five days later, 127 hours later, he comes across a family that's hiking and sees him. And, it, of course, they contact the police and he, he gets rescued. The story of his ordeal has been captured in a movie called 127 Hours, the time that he was trapped. The name of his book and the subtitle of the movie is Between a Rock and a Hard Place. It's a good name for a book, isn't it, based on that story? And he lives on now to tell this amazing story and how he continues to hike and continues to do things and how life has continued on for him, obviously now in a much different state. Have you ever been stuck between a rock and a hard place? We use that phrase, don't we? We talk about when we're in a difficult situation, when we feel trapped. If you've ever been in a situation where you feel like there's no way out, I just don't have options, I'm in a, in a rock between a rock and a hard place. Maybe, maybe you're a young family and you've got some young kids and... and you know, the mom is staying home, taking care of the kids and, and realizing, man, money's tight. I, I, we, we're not able to make ends meet. So I need, to, I need to go find some kind of job, but I still want to be there for the kids and they're so young. And, and if I get a job, then there's not enough to pay, you know, for the child care and, and still make the, the bills 
you know, pay the bills, but if I don't go get a job, then we're tight, and, and you kind of feel like I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Or maybe you've explored options for treatment for something that you're dealing with or a loved one, and you're going, these are just bad options. I mean, Aaron's options in this canyon were to die or to lose a limb. Those aren't good options, right? That's a rock and a hard place. And we find situations in our life where we feel trapped, we feel like we're out of options, or maybe where we feel like this adventure that we've set on, like Aaron, this, this destination that we wanted to go on, this, the, the way that we imagine life doesn't happen, and all of a sudden we're throwing a major curveball. How do we handle that? Well, we're in the series that we just began last week called The Heat Is On. And that phrase, too, what we mean by that are, are situations in life where you just feel the pressure. The heat's on you. Something's got to give. Something's got to shake loose. You're, you're maybe having some sleepless nights. Your mind is constantly trying to figure out how to solve a problem for your family or for your future or for your life or, again, whatever area of life that might be. And the heat is on and you're saying, something's got to give. I need to find a way out. I need to find a solution. But today's message is about being stuck between a rock and a hard place. And what we've said for the series is we're going to look each week at a different story from the Bible where people have found themselves in a situation where the heat is on. And we're going to learn from the way that they responded. We're going to learn from how God responded and hopefully learn how we can respond in our situation. So I want to get into a passage today in Exodus chapter 13 and 14. So if you already want to turn to Exodus chapter 13 and 14, the second book of uh, the Bible, Genesis, then Exodus, we're going to take a snapshot out of a story uh, from, from that book, and we're going to look at that. Let's, uh, let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we dive into your word, your word is truth. It's our guide for living. We have no other manual. But more than a manual, God, it's a story of your people. It's a story of your interaction with humanity. It's a story of hope and life. And so, God, through all the difficulties that people face and the stories that are shared in Scripture, help us to see ourselves. And, God, would you just give us uh, some hope today that even if we're stuck between a rock and a hard place, God, that you can help us find a way out. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine a, uh, a beach scene. Have you ever been to the beach or camping Camping on the beach? Any of you ever been camping on a beach? I've never been able to do that. I've been to a beach, but I'd love to do that. And so imagine camping on the beach and imagine being a kid and, and what that must be like. And the scene that, that, that I want us to begin with today it's just a scene that's a, a bunch of kids that are playing on the beach. It's a hot day. feels like they're kind of in the desert, but they're there um, by the waterfront. And so as kids would do on a waterfront, they're building sandcastles. Maybe they're going in and, and, you know, just jumping around in the water. Maybe somebody brought something to float on. And, and they're just having a great time laughing and enjoying it. As a matter of fact, the, all the people that they were with were celebrating. And it wasn't just a few people. It was a, a camping trip of probably over a million people. <laughs> it's a big camping trip, right? Um, so a lot of kids running around, but these folks were excited. They were ecstatic. Some great things had happened for them. They were celebrating, and the kids have been just kind of caught up in this exciting adventure that they were on. And what they'd been told is they're going to go move to a new place where life is just going to be amazing, and the hardships that they've had are going to be different in this new place, and we're on our way, and, and God has done some amazing things for us, and there's just great excitement throughout the whole the whole land, the whole tribe that's been, that's been traveling and, and are now camped at the side of the sea. And so I imagine one of these kids or a couple of these kids, you know, they're coming back and they've been playing and they come back to their parents and, and they're over by their tents and, and have their belongings around. And, and they start hearing on this bright, sunny day, they start hearing what sounds like thunder. 
or maybe an earthquake or, or something, but it's just a sound out of the ordinary. It's kind of a, a rumbling sound. And they're kind of confused because they look up at the sky. It's a blue sky. It's a warm day. Nothing else seems to be happening. They've never heard something like that. And it gets louder and it gets louder and louder. And then pretty soon they look out on the horizon and they see a dust cloud, a huge dust cloud, a haboob <laughs> is coming through, right, like we know here in Phoenix. But all of a sudden they're seeing dust being kicked up and the, th- the thundering is getting louder and louder. And it doesn't take long before on the horizon they see these tiny little figures appear and it looks like they're on horseback. And their chariots, not just one or two, hundreds of them, hundreds upon hundreds of horsemen on chariots, commanders coming at full throttle right at them. And because of where they've just come from, they recognize very quickly that this is Pharaoh and his army. None other than Pharaoh ruling the most impressive, most powerful nation in in the world to that day. And so he was coming and they were in hot pursuit. And so They began to see the kids, and as the parents and everybody is seeing this, panic is starting to grip the entire nation of Israel. Who had left Egypt and who had fled from the slavery of Egypt, they were making their way to the promised land because Pharaoh finally told them to go, and and the excitement of that whole journey now left them stuck between a rock and a hard place. Except the rock and the hard place weren't a rock and a boulder. It was the sea on one side, the desert on the other, with Pharaoh's army fast approaching and with only one intent, to either kill them or take them back to become slaves. And they panic. And they look at their options, and they're saying, what are the options before us? Drown? Or get slaughtered and die and while we fight? Or go back to slavery? Would you say they're stuck between a rock and a hard place? <laughs> pretty bad options, if you, t- if you ask me. I don't know which one I would take. They all sound pretty bad. What we're going to look at is the heat is on in this moment. How are the people of God going to respond? How's God going to respond? What's going to happen in this? And so we're going to look at the response and what happens. But I also want to know, how did they get into this situation? Because sometimes I want us to look at our situations and go, how did we get to this point? And what is God doing? And what is happening behind the scenes? And so this is where we we kind of pick up in chapter 13. So I'm going to go backwards first. We're going to rewind the tape and see how did they get to this place in time. Now, if you've been in church for any time or around, um, you've probably heard the story of the people of, uh, of the Israelites being in captivity for 400 years in Egypt, right? They're, they're in a famine. Their forefathers had settled there, and pretty soon they grew to be a great nation. But Pharaoh and all of his military might and power basically held these foreigners captive and had them build some of the great cities of Egypt. They'd always been promised the promised land, the, the home of their forefathers, this great place that they would one day go to. And so it happened in this time, in this story, as we pick up that Moses, the deliverer, Moses, one of them, who actually grew up in Pharaoh's home, came back many years later to rescue and free the people. And he'd go up before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And he refused and made him work harder. But then all these different plagues and difficulties that God brought upon the people finally forced Pharaoh's hand to where he said, we can't take it anymore. On the, the last of these occasions was the firstborn son was taken. For all those that didn't put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And Pharaoh finally broke and said, go, leave. And after 400 years of slavery, do you think these people were ecstatic? I mean, they were thrilled. This was a huge day. They grabbed all the belongings. They even got some of the belongings from the Egyptians. They were just, leave our, like, leave our country. We don't want to have anything else to do with you. You're bringing all this terror on our land. And, and just go to the promised land. And so there was great rejoicing and celebration. I mean, things were looking up. They were excited about their future. 
they're heading to the promised land. And so you can just imagine this mass exodus. Huh, that's interesting. That's the name of the book. The mass exodus. So if you ever wonder what's in the book of Exodus, right? It's about the people of God exiting um, Egypt and heading on their way to the promised land. And so great hope and great excitement. But here's the thing. How did they end up stuck at the Red Sea? I mean, isn't there a better way to go? And so let's, let's kind of pick up the story here in, uh, in, in Exodus chapter 13, verse, seven, uh, verse 27. Man, my eyes are getting bad. Verse, what is that, 17. See, I need, I need the large print Bible. Um, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them on the road that runs through the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest way from Egypt to the promised land. Don't you love the GPS on your, on your phone? You know, if you've got Google Maps, I always use Google Maps. And then it always gives you three options, right, to get to somewhere. If you pick the longest, most obscure route to your destination, <laughs> that says a lot about you. <laughs> That's maybe a very good character trait. Most of us, like the Israelites, when they popped it into their GPS, they're saying the shortest, most direct route is straight, <laughs> is go right to the promised land because it'll be faster. We don't want to spend all this time with millions of people in the desert. It doesn't make any sense. I want the shortest route. And then there was this, this, this route wouldn't have even ever shown up on any GPS because it dead-ended into the Red Sea. And so it says here that even though that was the shortest route, God did not lead them on that road from Egypt. And here's his, his reason. And sometimes I think we wonder, God, why are you not leading us in the shortest route? God, I, I know what I want. I know what I want for my marriage. I know what I want for my finances. I know what I want for my kids. I know what I want for my health. I know what I want for whatever it is in your life. You have the shortest route plan, don't you? For my education, for my degree, I just got to do this. And I end up here and we go, I want the shortest route. God, that's the promised land. That's where I want to go. When we think about our faith or you become a follower of Christ, and, and, and so much of the story of Exodus really parallels what we experience as believers. Those of us who turn our life to Christ is we are let go of the slavery that we've been caught in in sin. And maybe you have this moment of Exodus where you finally are free and you're saying, I'm leaving behind all the garbage of my old life, the sin that has held me back, and I'm going to the promised land. And then there's preachers and pastors like me and others who say, when you become a follower of Christ, your life is going to be cupcakes and roses. It's going to be awesome, Twinkies, if you will. I mean, you're going to find love and joy and peace and happiness and hope and courage and all these good things, and that's true. But it's not the whole picture. But I think we hope this promised land because God does bring us a lot of those things, but I think we attach to that, this perfect life that is now going to unfold before us. And so we go, God, the shortest route now, I want there. I want to put behind some of the darkness, the difficulty, take me on the shortest route. And that's exactly what the Israelites wanted to do to head to the promised land. But the story continues like this. And here's what God says why he didn't take them the shortest route. If the people are faced with the battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them along a route through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the Israelites left Egypt like a marching army. God saw something ahead for the Israelites. Where he said, you know what, if they go there, they're going to face a fight that they're not ready to fight. Now, if you read further through Scripture and you hear the stories of Joshua and others after they finally, years later, 40 years later, when they finally start conquering and taking the promised land, they're going in in battle. But see, what happens here is the Israelites have been enslaved for 400 years. Do you think they were ready to face military battles? Not at all. They didn't know anything but to make bricks 
and mortar and build cities and, and, and farm land, but they weren't pre- prepared to be a, a fighting army. And God said if they were to face this Philistine fierce army along the route, they would cower in fear and return back to slavery. And to say this isn't worth it, they weren't ready. And I think sometimes what I love about the story is here, we get a picture of God's view and we get the people view. And in our life, we only get our view. We don't ever get to hear what God's thinking, and maybe in retrospect. But here we get to see God going, you know, if, if I let them go that shortest route, what they think is the easiest route, they may face some battles that they're not ready, at, and, and, and I'm going to protect you from that. And so a detour that you're facing right now may very well be God saying, I'm protecting you from something else. It may lead you a more difficult, more cumbersome route, but God was behind this. And so he led them to the Red Sea. And so they're heading that direction. And then we, uh, we see later in, in, in chapter 14, some verses later, it says this. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Tell the people to march toward Pahihiroth, between Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore opposite Baal Zephon. Did I say those right? You know how I know I said those right? You just say them with confidence, even though I don't think I was that confident. So there's no magical thing that I, as a pastor, perfectly know how to pronounce these, but I sometimes trick you guys by just saying like I really know them, and then nobody questions it like, oh, he must be the pastor. He must know how to say that. So take confidence in your Bible reading. If you come across something like that, just come out with it and keep going. Then nobody will question you. All right? Um, so anyway, these crazy places, they camp there. So God sends them there. And here's what he says. Then Pharaoh will think these Israelites are confused. They are trapped between the wilderness and the sea. Yeah, Pharaoh, because God's going, Pharaoh's going to notice, hey, all these people I let go, they are now trapped. And what do you think the Israelites are feeling? We're trapped. I don't think they're just feeling that. I think they really are experiencing that. And so there they are. There they camp. But then we also see it going on there. The scripture says, and once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after you. I have, what, planned this. So I will, I will receive great glory at the expense of Pharaoh and his armies. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. Again, there's a plan. And we don't always get to see what God is doing. But he's brought them to this point, And he's also understanding what, he, what he's doing to Pharaoh. And then in the next section, we read where Pharaoh goes, What have I done? <laughs> How have I just let this entire workforce, these entire people that have helped me build my kingdom, what have I done letting them go? And he calls for his 600 top commanders and chariots. And then all the rest of the chariots in Egypt. And he says, we're going after them. He saw that they were camped. He saw that they were stuck. He was a military strategist and commander. And they knew this was foolish. They're done. All we got to do is go up there and we either kill them or bring them home. That's the only options that we give them unless they walk in the sea and drown. He knew the three options, just like the Israelites knew the three options. And so we pick up again on that scene, right? All of these armies now are coming by the hundreds and thousands, fiercely armed people coming up to what was a band of slaves for 400 years as their identity, basically stuck, basically trapped, sitting ducks. We continue on in verse 10 of chapter 14. It says, As Pharaoh and his army approached, The people of Israel could see them in the distance marching toward them. The people began to panic, and they cried out to the Lord for help. Then they turned against Moses and complained, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough enough graves for us in Egypt? Why did you make us leave? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone while we were still in Egypt? Our Egyptian slavery was far better than dying out here in the wilderness. When we get trapped... When we get into a panic situation 
And we've set out on a journey. We've set out to do something good in our life. We've set out to, to have a workout plan. But then some things get, get difficult. We have an education plan, and then we get some hurdles along the way. We have a financial plan, and things get trapped along the way. We have a plan for our marriage, and things aren't working out the way we thought. We have a vision and a plan for our children, how they're going to be and grow up, and things go awry, and things feel like we're stuck and we're out of options. And when things begin to falter, it's great when everything's going well, but when things begin to falter and we feel like, God, you've given us some promises to hold on to, when things begin to falter, the crazy thing is we immediately turn to God and go, why? (laughs) Why are you doing this to me? Man, I had it better before. And we get this illusion. We forget they were slaves. They were, it was a bad situation for many years, and they are willing to go back to that. And they begin to question. And sometimes I wonder for us in our faith, and I've seen it time and time again over the years as a pastor, those that are on fire for their faith, that begin a new journey, and they're baptized and saying, man, I'm feeling God so strong in my life, and when I come to worship, I feel like he's right there, and I read the Bible, and it, it just it speaks to me and inspires me. And some time later... And this is going to happen to every single one of us who's ever been a believer for any amount of time. It's just not going to feel like that. I have never met a single follower of Christ who says from the day that I became a Christian, it just got better and better and stronger and stronger and richer and richer and and more brilliant and more brilliant. There may have been a bedrock that kept growing, but boy, there were some times. There were some times for me where there's just darkness. Sometimes it's the discipline of coming to worship. That is what sustains me through a difficult time. Not because I feel like, I just can't wait to the church today and worship. It's the discipline of reading the Bible. It doesn't mean that I always want to read the Bible. It's the discipline of prayer. And then there are seasons where even the discipline falters. And you have those dark times. And the question is, what do you do when you hit that obstacle, when you bump up against the Red Sea and your past is quickly catching up to you, trying to enslave you again and go, come back here. Come back here, old friends, old habits, old patterns, old addictions. They're coming to get you. Pharaoh's army's coming to get you. And you're trapped, and you might just go, you know what, I'm giving in. Being a follower of Christ is just, just maybe too hard, maybe too much expected, maybe too much demanded of my time, or maybe too much of my resources or my energies or whatever it is. And so they cry out, Moses, why? And they're ready to, you know, to say, hey, we, we, let's just surrender and let them take us back to Egypt. They felt trapped. But Moses told the people, verse 13, Don't be afraid. Just stand where you are and watch the Lord rescue you. The Egyptians that you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. You won't have to lift a finger in your defense. That's pretty cool, isn't it? If it's true. Right? If it's true, that's pretty awesome. I mean, we're looking at three options, death by drowning, death by, you know, armed military, or going back to slavery. (laughs) Three horrible options, and Moses saying, just stand there and watch the Lord fight for you. And I think what so many of us aren't willing to do is the pressure is on, the heat is on, things have gotten so tight, we start trying to solve it on our own. And we look at those options, we don't see a way out, and one of the things we don't aren't willing to do is to still hold on to hope, to still hold on to the promised land. The promised land was still there. They just had no clue how to get there, and they didn't see a way to get to where they wanted to be. But he said, look, if this is the promise of God, he will get you there. Are you willing to hold on to hope even when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, even when it feels like your life isn't going in the direction you want? Watch the Lord fight for you. And I I love where this goes, though. Then it's kind of almost like an irony to, to Moses saying, Just stand there and watch. The very next line here says, Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. It's almost like Moses saying just, oh, oh, don't just stand there. Oh, get moving. Sorry, I misinterpreted that. You do need to get moving. But the funny question for me is where? God's telling the people to get moving. Where are they supposed to move? They can't fight. They don't have any military opportunities. And they're not going to have a million people swim with all their stuff across a, a sea that they can't cross. And this is where the challenge of faith comes into your situation. We get paralyzed by fear. We get stuck in our situation and go, there is no forward, there is no back. We throw up our hands, God's why. I'm willing to go back. I can't possibly go any further into the obstacle or into the difficulties or the challenges that I'm facing. And I think God is just simply saying, move towards it. You mean the Red Sea? Well, yeah, where's the promised land? It's not back in Egypt. It's on the other side of the Red Sea. Move towards your promises, even though there's an obstacle in front of you. Even if you don't see where you need to go, lean into that difficulty, get moving. It's called the step of faith for a reason. God doesn't always show us the whole path, but maybe there was still, you know, another 50 feet before they hit the water that they could move. Okay, God, I'm walking towards the water. I mean, I'm running out of room to move, but I am heading in the general direction of the promise. Are you going to do something? And you're looking in your life, and you maybe lean into the pain that you're experiencing. Maybe it's one of those situations where you're going, and I've heard people, you know, make decisions and say, we're going to tithe, we're going to give 10% of our income, we're going to take that step of faith in the beginning, it seems to work, and then the bills pile up. And then all of a sudden, there's a curveball, and there's an emergency on the car. There's a house payment, and you start going, oh, God, I don't think I can move into that promise anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do. And God's saying, are you going to be faithful, and are you going to walk towards that promise and watch me fight for you? Or you're going to fight for yourself. And what's, what would happen if they fought for themselves? Death, done. They, don't have, they didn't have an option, but they said, watch what God can do if you trust. So tell the people to get moving. And maybe some of you right now, you've been paralyzed Get moving in the direction of your promise, even if you don't even know what that's going to look like or how God's going to show up, but it's a step of faith. And then Moses, uh, the Lord tells Moses in verse 16, use your shepherd's staff, hold it out over the water, and a path will open up before you through the Red Sea. Then all the people of Israel will walk through on dry ground. (laughs) Isn't that what some of us need to know right now? That a path will open up before you? Some of us, we just can't see the path. We can't see where we need to go. We can't see what it is that we need to do. And then a path opens up like it does between those black curtains that everyone's looking at. See how I use the environment to blend right into my message and capture the audience back? And that was perfect, perfect timing. (laughs) Some of us need to know that a path will open up before you because you don't see it. And sometimes it's the act of moving towards the promises of God where the path begins to open. And I love what it says here, on dry ground. It wasn't even going through the sea where we knew the seabed would be muddy and wet and so God sent a strong wind, parted the waters. Yes, this might be one of those stories where you're going, oh, isn't that a fairy tale? Is that myth? I, it's God's word, I believe it. If we're followers of Christ, then we can believe that Jesus, the only way you can become a follower of Christ is if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, was born by a virgin, he lived on this earth, He died a physical death, was dead for three days, and he rose again to be the Son of God. That's what it takes to be a follower of Christ, to understand and believe that, and that that is who God is. If we can believe that, this miracle is nothing for God to part the waters. It's another part of our faith, and we saw what God was able to do, and this was this foundational story in all of Scripture, this parting of the Red Sea, a dry path towards the promised land. Sometimes, again, I think we just need to lean into the pain that we're having and go, where are the promises that God has for us? 
And then watch what God does, right? He begins to dry out this path. They begin to get moving, and God positions this pillar of, of cloud by day and fire by night, and he keeps the Israelite armies at bay. I mean, the, uh, the Egyptian armies at bay, and the Israelites begin to march through on this dry seabed to the other side. And they're marching through, and then what it says is when they get to the other side. I mean, that to me is just the promise in here, is that there is another side to the problem and the challenge that you're facing right now. Did you ever get to that point again? You're stuck between a rock and a hard place, and you go, you know, or you look back in your life at times where you've screwed up or things have just been an absolute disaster. There is another side. There is another side that we actually come to. And, and it's a matter of, do we walk through? And so they're getting through. And when they got to the other side, the Lord told Moses, all right, now lower your staff. And as the Israelite armies were chasing in, they were thrown into confusion. The wheels of the chariots were starting to fall off. And the, the Egyptians themselves were starting to say, turn back, let's go. The Lord is fighting for the Israelites. And remember what God said in the beginning? It wasn't just for the glory of Israel that they would know that he is God, but he wanted to show that he is the Lord to the Egyptians as well. And, and he wiped out the entire pursuing army behind them. The thing that was coming back to try to grab them, the thing that's trying to come back to pull you back into addiction or into bad habits or to emotional issues and anger and control and hatred and bitterness and jealousy and envy and rage and, and, and self-depression uh, and, and, and woe is me, all those things that want to keep pulling you back, God said, let me fight that for you. And eventually, if you are moving and keep moving in the right direction, I'm going to fight those battles for you. And he wiped, he wiped it out. And what I find even so powerful in this is we move, God opens up a path, and then we get to the other side. And what, I, what I've never thought about before until this week as I was kind of preparing this is um, the Israelites are now on the other side of the Red Sea, and now it closes back up, right? And it becomes this Red Sea. There's no more path. The very obstacle that became an obstacle for them towards the promised land now became a barrier for them to head back into slavery. Let that sink in for a little bit. The very thing that you are fighting through right now, the very thing that threatens to take you out in your walk of faith, the very thing that threatens to destroy your marriage, your health, your emotional well-being, your career, your kids, that very thing, if you follow the path through to the promises of God, you'll never make a mistake pursuing the promises of God. And when God begins to open that, that very thing that was your most difficult thing, when you get to the other side, it's going to become the firm reminder that I'm not going back there again. It was like this God sealing the deal saying, look, you are now absolutely free from your slavery. You are not going back to Egypt again. The promised land is now ahead of you. Now, it would be nice to say it was all smooth sailing from there on out, right? (laughs) They still had battles to fight. They still had lessons to learn. But they knew now, looking back, when we have these kind of conquerings in our life, we know God is faithful. God will come through. And the crazy thing is we keep forgetting it. But if we are faithful to remember what God has done, we can lean on those same promises and watch what God can do going forward. You know, a story I've told here many times, but it, it, it needs to be repeated over and over again, like some of these stories of the Scripture. And I'll just tell it in brief this morning, but is how we fought an amazing obstacle and the way God created a Red Sea story for us here at One Community Church when it came to the purchase of our property at One Central. And I remember we, we did what we could. We raised money. We, we came together as a church to say, we want to 
We believe God is calling us to that promise. That's a promise that he has for us. We prayed over it. We felt like this is what we got to do as a church. And so it was easy, right? You raise the money, and once we raise the money, we write the short sale offer to the the owner, and then we're going to get it at a fraction of the price. And if everything goes according to plan, that's what happens. We raise the money. We got our, the loans that we needed, and we had raised enough of our own, and we wanted to write the short sale offer for, uh, you know, a third of the price. And we were supposed to get that property. We were being faithful. And then God threw a big red sea in front of us, which was the owner didn't accept the offer. Nope, not even going to talk to you. The house is going to go into foreclosure, and you won't see it. And I remember sitting there three days, or two days after our big Sunday where we raised all the money completely just at a dead end, like literally just between a rock and a hard place. God, we just put weeks and months into this, and now it's just done. There's no path forward. And I remember getting a phone call saying, the house is going for auction in two days. And you won't believe it, but the opening bid is a fraction of what you wanted to pay for it. $86,000, $135 for over an acre on Hunt Highway in a house that you wanted and that you were even willing to pay, you know, up to almost double for and I started getting this hope and going, all right, got to lean into that. God, we got to lean into that, all right? I don't know how to do auctions. I don't know how we're going to have the full cash to pay for it, which we need, not just a loan, all kinds of obstacles. I'm not going to get into those details. And I remember showing up there on that day for the auction on the courthouse steps in, in, in Florence. And they began to auction off stories, and it was like storage wars. Ever see storage wars where people are bidding each other up and just trying to get some guy to buy high so they'll leave this low? And I thought, hey, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know how to do this and how we can get this. Who else is interested? And I remember asking Shannon to pray and others to pray. We're going to auction. And it was, again, a Red Sea before us. How do we get this? And how much of this bid, is this bid going to go up to you? And in the course of that day, our house just didn't come for auction. It didn't come up for auction until the very last house of the day. But leading up to that, God began to, through conversation and others, reveal you know, who else was, was bidding on that house. And, I, and there were several other people interested in that house. And one by one, those, real, those, those, those investors literally dropped away and said, uh, if you're bidding on that, if that's what you're interested in, then we're going to back off. And it was literally God parting the waters. I mean, as I see this aisle here in the middle, and I'm going, it was kind of what happened was that on the other side was the house that we wanted, and God started removing bidders, removing people that were interested in in the auction. And then it was the very last house of the day, and I still didn't know, like, who else here was going to bid on it. And when the auctioneer said, we're going to call 852 well, I don't even remember my address now, 835244 North Tricka Road. Uh, he said he called it up for auction. He says, next house up for auction, uh, kind of giving a warning. And one by one, the remaining people just started packing up their stuff and leaving. He literally had wiped out everyone else. He didn't kill them. Um, he just uh, removed them. <laughs> they did not have the fate of the Egyptian army. <laughs> and, and there it was me and Stephen, who rags there, was our intern at the time, and uh, and the auctioneer, and he said, I opened the bidding at $86,135. Do I have an opening bid? And we were like, plus $1. Stephen was like, plus $10,000. i am like, shut up. No, no, he didn't say that. <laughs> plus $1. And it was like silence. He said, going once, going twice, three times, sold, one community church, $86,135. That next day, again, God provided ways for some short-term cash. We were able to pay for it fully, you know, and then have some borrowed funds still. And, and I remember going to the trustees where they, we had to sign the paperwork. And on that Saturday, they gave me the key. The Sunday before, we came together as a church in faith to raise some money to see if it's even possible to get this house. And we thought it would still take time and foreclosures and short sales. 
the next Saturday, I stood in that house. I walked in. I unlocked the door. And I remember standing there on that Saturday going, this is ours. Like, God has just provided it in a miraculous way. Now, we're still paying on it and whatnot. But it was undeniable what God had done. And we took that story, and it's all to God's honor. I mean, it was literally, I think God takes us on some of these detours because he's saying, look, I want to show you that there is a way forward. There is a dry path through. Will you keep moving? Even though you don't see it, will you keep moving and, and, and be faithful to what I've called you to do? And God will part those waters, and I think we're going to have some stories to tell. When the heat is on, lean into your big, biggest obstacle and watch what God can do. And someday you may be telling the story about that obstacle in your, in your rearview mirror, and it becomes a story that strengthens your faith time and time again. Like the story of One Central ought to be a story for us to tell over and over and over again because it was a reminder that God is with us, that he's for us, that he is able to do amazing things. When I think about our faith, not just the desires and goals we have in life, but really the story of our faith captured here is captured in the essence of Jesus There is no way forward in this life without Jesus. You know, Scripture tells us that everyone has sinned and everyone has fallen short of God's glory. Not one of us is good enough. In Romans, it tells us we can obey every letter of the law. We can try to be perfect, and it's still not good enough. We're stuck between a rock and a hard place when it comes to our faith because we're going, there's nothing you can do to be good enough. There's nothing you can earn. You can't give enough money to the church. You can't serve enough hours in the church. You can't be loving enough. You can't be a good enough husband, wife, father, son, child, employee, employer, whatever it is, teammate, schoolmate, classmate, right? You can't. And so we go, we're stuck. But God sent Jesus to make a way. And that's why in our faith, we are people of God's word, if those of us who here have put our faith in Christ know there's always hope because we have Jesus who came, who became the sacrifice for us on the cross so that our sins would be forgiven, not because of what we've done and how good we are, but because we've just said, God, I surrender to you and in faith I'm leaning on what you have done for us on the cross and he, begins, he makes the way for us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so regardless of what you're facing in your life right now, one of the things some of you may be needing to wrestle with this morning is where are you in your faith? Are you still trying to make the path yourself? You're going to hit the Red Sea. And an army is going to be pursuing you, trying to drag you back into slavery. The only way through spiritually, the only way through our life, is when we say, God, I need you to fight for me. And I'm going to take a step in faith in that direction towards what you have for me. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. The story of the Israelites in this exodus, God, has been told hundreds and thousands and millions of times throughout history. Generations upon generations, churches upon churches, believers and uh, and Jews alike, God, are telling the story over and over again of what you've done. But God, it's not just a one-time story. It reminds us of, of your willingness to fight for us if we pursue your promises, if we stay on the path that you're leading us. God, I know there's some people here this morning that are just facing what seem like insurmountable odds, incredibly different, difficult circumstances, hopeless situations. God, would you give them courage to keep moving in the direction of the promise, to keep trusting you, to watch you fight for them? Would you open up a dry path before them and lead them to the other side? We can't wait to hear the stories, God, of how you've done that before and how you'll do it again. And we just want you to receive all the honor this morning.
Father, if there are any here this morning whose life is not right with you, who have just tried on their own to, to do good, to be good, to try to be more religious or holy, and, and, and have never, God, just leaned in to your grace and surrendered and sacrificed themselves at your feet, God, and saying, God, it's because of what you've done. Father, give courage this morning to receive that gift from you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. As we close, I'd like you to stand. And as is familiar to many of you here, we have our ways of responding. Communion is such a wonderful example of the sacrifice that we just ended up talking about. Christ dying on the cross, the bread representing his broken body for us, for the forgiveness of our sin. And the the cup, the juice, represents his blood spilled out for us. When we take communion, what we're saying is, God, I can't do this on my own, and I can't earn it on my own, and I'm not good enough on my own. It's because of what you've done that I have grace and that I can even try to live and be the person you've created me to be. Thank you, God. Thank you for what you've done. Go and take communion and thank him. Or or as you're facing an obstacle before you, maybe you just go and you light a candle and you say, God, I need a a light in my path. I need a, a dry path before me. I'm trusting you today. You light that candle and you just say, God, that's just a symbol of what I want you to do for me in my life. Maybe you pray with somebody um, or just go and kneel and pray on your own and write that prayer request on a card. Uh, We will pray for that. And we want to see God part waters for you. And not only that, we want to hear the stories and celebrate what God is doing for faithful people who trust in him.